Well, uh, welcome back to another episode of Public Problems. We've I moved inside today. The weather out here in Issaquah is a little rainy today, which it has a tendency to do. But thank you for joining again. Um, excited to do June 7th, uh, Who We Are, Who We Are. Who Are We Part 2 today with you all. Um, I have some front matter things to discuss, and then we'll jump right into the, to the topics for today, which I'm quite excited to share with you. So a couple things you should know. Um, We've been posting our videos from Facebook onto YouTube, so we now have a YouTube channel as well, which is Public Problems with Justin Bullock. You can search for the videos there. Here in probably about two weeks, we'll be streaming live both from Facebook and YouTube at the same time. Not everyone likes to use Facebook, and I don't blame them. Um, so, uh, let's see, what else? After this, this will be the last episode of this series, uh, Who Are We? I have a couple of conversations that I'm planning, both with friends and colleagues, to bring to you, uh, live and recorded. So start introducing some conversations with other individuals here in the near future. I'm really excited about that. Um, and our next source material, we're going to take a little bit of a break from Huxley and a little bit of a break from the Less Wrong Forum. And we're going to visit with Tim Urban's blog series, The Story of Us. And I think um, Tim's blog series actually does a really nice job of building uh, out some of the concepts we've been exploring about the connection between individuals and groups and society. And he has some nice illustrations, which are a lot of fun, sort of inspired some of the illustrations you're going to see today. So, uh, we'll, and, our, and it's publicly available. And uh, he has a whole Wait But Why blog series that you should consider checking out some really interesting things there as well. I think that's all we get started. Let's see. Um, so welcome back to uh, the studio and to public problems. I'm going to continue to use the whiteboard that you can see the edge of there to discuss the topics. Um, today we're going to work through one blog post that I shared in the uh, group page to before the episode. On, from the Less Wrong Forum about trying to describe some of these things that Huxley's been talking about, mindfulness and enlightenment, in ways that are less mysterious, as Cage Sertal huh, puts it, and use a little bit more um, science and rational and logic and some ties to psychology to build up some additional intuitions for some of the things that Huxley has been sharing with us, or that I've been sharing with you from Huxley. So we're going to do that, and then after that, we are going to turn back to Huxley for, um, for, to fill you in on the who are we broader argument. So last week's episode, I gave you the bottom line up front, as it were, to tell you some of his conclusions. This week, uh, I want to share, you, share with you the broader argument that he makes for those conclusions. So you're going to get a little bit more of a rationalist, scientific psychology, non-mysterious language. You go back to Huxley, that's most of Huxley's language as well, but he does uh, step into the mysterious and the spiritual realm as it was. So we'll see what he has to say today as well. All right. Put those things in there. Beautiful whiteboard. I have to say, I've enjoyed writing on a physical whiteboard. And since not being in the classroom, 
in the physical classroom for quite some time. Okay, this is the overview. So hopefully you can see it. Take a screenshot if you like. There you go. And the title of the blog post, um, you can search it. It's shared in the fan page, but I really want to give Cage Sotala um, the credit here for laying this out in some ways that I think is really intuitive and potentially interesting to you. All right, so with that in mind, the article, so you can look it up, is my attempt to explain looking, insight, meditation, and enlightenment in non-mysterious terms. So to make this argument, Sotala relies on this psychological concept known as cognitive diffusion. And cognitive diffusion is this idea that at some points you can become fused, kind of how you view yourself, how you're uh, experiencing your immediate moment with a thought or with an emotion. So one of the examples that Sotala uses is imagine that you're in a, a fight with a friend or a significant other and all you feel in that moment is that frustration or that anger. That's kind of being fused with an emotion. You can also be fused with your thoughts or fused with a thought. So you can have, I don't know if this happened to you, it certainly has happened to me, you can have some thought that is really all you're focusing on. It either kind of repeats a little bit in your mind or you just have a train of thoughts coming through and you, in some sense, become fused with those thoughts. That's where your attention lies. That's sort of what's making up your current moment. And one of the insights is that you can, you can defuse this process at will. And this is the, some of the insights from uh, meditation and looking and mindfulness is that really at any point you don't have to be fused with your thoughts. You can have strategies and practices to be able to step away from the thought, to be able to step away from the emotion as you're experiencing it. This is called defusion. Cognitive defusion, this ability to step away from your narrative, step away from your uh, emotions and not be fused with them. And it builds off this idea that you, the, the experience in you, is not equivalent to your thoughts, is not equivalent to your feelings and emotions. You can step back, as it were, and reflect and step away from those things. And this is through a broader process that meditation talks about of being more deliberate with your attention. So you have a limited uh, amount of attention, can only really be directed in one place at a time, even though we use multitasking. The kind of experiencing attention you is, uh, it really can only focus on one thing at a time. And so this cognitive diffusion is a way of focusing your attention clearly enough to be able to defuse in those situations, to be able to have a strategy for stepping away, to be enough alert, have enough attention in those moments to know that that's something that you need to do. One of the strategies uh, that you may be familiar with if you've uh, ever been exposed to these concepts in a popular way is this notion of following your breath. And I mentioned this last week as one strategy to defuse from whatever emotion or thought you're having. So you can close your eyes, you can focus on your breath, and you can try to count it. 
You can try to sit with the breath as sort of the thing that you're paying attention on. And with practice, you can do that. You can do that successfully and identify thoughts and emotions as they are coming to you. That's one strategy for practicing this cognitive diffusion. Okay, so in addition to thinking about meditation as a tool for cognitive diffusion, so Tala uh, points out that another piece of this that is important is understanding the nature of suffering and differentiating that from pain, for example. And so Tala described this in a way that I really like, and it's this idea of if something is perceived to be painful by us, that we flinch away from it, that we close our eyes and we turn our heads, and it's too much for us to, uh, to look at because it's too painful. Think of this as uh, how I respond to horror movies sometimes when we're doing them for the Rabbit Weasel podcast. There are some scenes that the, they're so hard for me to look at that I actually flinch and look away, right? And if the idea here is that suffering is, is rooted in this flinching, this refusing to stare at the pain for what it is and then move on from it. And so the idea here is that if you can push through and not flinch at pain, you actually alleviate suffering in that way. But if not, if you flinch away from painful things, they will cause you uh, extended suffering. So Satara suggests to you to, and I'm suggesting to you, to think about this process that we mentioned a minute ago, which is the fusion process, trying to be able to step away, uh, use these diffusion techniques, step away from being fused with your thoughts, and look, which is what we're going to get to in a minute, and pay attention to what your mind is doing when you're suffering. And what does that process look like? And try to observe those thoughts rather than pushing them away or flinching from them. Just observe them. All right, there's a, next this notion of looking or looking up as the less wrong community, some of the examples within, uh, within those blogs use. And this is uh, the idea that when we are cognitively fused with our thoughts, we forget to look around. We forget to look at the new experience or the current experience that we're in. And they use some other examples, and you can read them in the blog. The one that I find compelling is the way in which you look when you go if you, uh, to a new place or to a place you haven't been for a while, and you're not completely lost in your thoughts. You're just, it's a lot of reason why people take vacations. They want to be in a spot that's new and vivid, and they look and they bring in the environment as their primary uh, attention focus, as a primary thing they're experiencing. Driving through some new mountains, seeing a new beach, a new lake, a new river, a new field, and looking at them, not thinking about what they are, but observing them directly. So the idea is that you want to be able to do this in lots of capacities, um, to be able to look directly into your experience rather than it being filled with just words or concepts. 
All right, so Huntsu is going to talk a little bit about what that means as well. And the basic strategy for being able to look and see things without necessarily filtering them in the same way through words or concepts is to relax, have some practice with the cognitive diffusion techniques, and observe, and then notice things. Sounds pretty simple, right? Well, I encourage you to, if you don't have practice with this, try relaxing. Try the basic mindfulness techniques. See if you can diffuse from the things that upset you. See if you can sit with your breath and not have thoughts intrude on you. Just going through that process allows you to observe it more carefully. You're putting attention in that direction, and if it's something that you do often, you can build this skill up. And then not only can you practice looking intrinsically at your own process, it allows you to look at direct experiences in a, a more um, direct way, I suppose. All right. The final piece of this, as Sotala explains it, is comes from, the, uh, from some concepts from Buddhism, and it's this idea that the experiencing self, the mind, has three marks on it. Let's see, I don't know if you can see your, your brain with three marks. Very clever right now, I think. Okay, and I have the, the marks represented as the brain saying, I want things to be permanent. I want permanence. I want satisfaction to be a permanent kind of state as well. And I am what matters. Just me, this uh, experiencing subjective self is all that really matters. I'm not connected to those other things, those not-selves out there. And the claim is that these are things that are systematic of all of our brains. We want things to be more permanent. We're not comfortable with impermanence, things always changing. We want to be satisfied, but we find that as we achieve the things that we want, we don't, give, we don't get the satisfaction from them that we expected. And this... Uh, the ego is the term that's used for it. this experiencing self, this narrowed down version, um, uh, this attention piece that you have. Um, this ego self insists upon itself. Um, it insists upon being the most important thing and being distinct from other things. Right? And the way to... Uh, to gain some of these insights or to gain enlightenment, as uh, Sotala and the Buddhists use it, is to practice this thing of cognitive diffusion, being able to separate from your, um, from your thoughts and from your emotions, because that really helps you alleviate suffering, and look and have introspection into your thought process. And if you do that, you do those things, the claim is that you learn these other things, that things all things are impermanent. All things are moving processes, as it were. And all things as experienced have, can be unsatisfactory in some way or some component. And that uh, some unsatisfactory elements, some suffering elements are just a part of life. And that there is no permanent self. There's no permanent, indivisible you separate from your environment. That you are both literally and metaphysically embodied within your environment and you're a changing process, not something 
that is uh, a permanent cell. You're changing process over time. All right, so this is how Sotala explains this. I, I like this as an sort of introduction to some of these concepts that relies a little less on uh, spiritual language, um, which I'm not always comfortable with, and some of you listening to this um, also might not be comfortable with if you don't have uh, a spiritual background. So that's Otala's uh, argument here of how you might experience enlightenment and how insight meditation and looking help you do that. So have that language in mind, and then we're going to turn to Huxley and walk through his lecture of what are we? Some coffee breaks there. So I have to flip it manually because I still did not set it up where I could just flip the board. Still learning these whiteboard things out. Uh, I've been so out of practice. All right. So there's a picture of this posted on the Facebook fan page. Uh, there's a lot going on here. Let's see if I can zoom it in for you. Just one good time for the camera in case you want to screen share. So last time we started here. We started with this little small box of Huxley's final formula, which was, as we experience things, as our experiencing selves, we're a small or partial version of uh, a broader consciousness that we have access to, and we are not in control of all these not-selves part of us, and he's going to give some examples for and that we need to kind of accept that and that this is also part of the, what's conceptualized in the religious life to have a good, fulfilling, or enlightened life. And his basic guidance is to live with the minimum of malice, uh, cruelty towards each other, and cruel intent, minimum of negative emotion, and that's in the suffering stuff, minimizing suffering, and fulfilling the basic moral requirements. Um, which we're not going to clearly define just yet, but you can think of within the great traditions of religion, like basic commandments, love your neighbor as yourself, honor your parents, those types of things. And sitting with this idea that we were just talking about, of you're not a permanent individual self, you're part of everything, as it were, the broader capital S self, the Atman Brahman as uh, Huxley likes to use it in the Eastern tradition. Okay, so I'm going to walk you through his lecture um, and you'll be able to see how we end up, how he ends up here. And it's going to flow, go through a flow chart. and go down this road, up, 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 down, and it flows just like that. Okay, so Huxley starts by saying, who are we? And what he means by that, he says, is who are we in relationship to our minds and our bodies? These experiencing, uh, awakened selves, what are they in relationship to the totality of your mind and body? Um, and 
in pointing that out, he, uh, he highlights that there are a lot of the terms we usually use now, subconscious or uh, other, he uses other selves, but um, the word we would usually think about that is subconscious processes. There are a lot of processes going on within your total body that you're not aware of um, and you have no control over. The example that he uses is he wants to raise his hand, right? And he has no idea how he does that, right? You just have the thought, raise your hand, and then the muscles do it, and they do it all on their own in a memorized kind of flexible way. But you don't actually know the whole process by which that happens. You just sort of order it in your mind, and your body does that. Same thing is true of other subconscious processes. Your heart beating, for example, we have no direct knowledge of how to make our heartbeat regularly, but it, but it does. We don't have any direct knowledge really as our experiencing selves of how of controlling our digestive system. Um, all of these things are controlled by things within us that are not what we think of as ourselves usually, as our uh, ego or as our as experiencing self. So the other piece of this is that there are other things, not only these digestive processes or these kind of automatic processes um, that we do subconsciously, we're also, we also have this kind of, um, he calls it ad hoc intelligence to imitate things. And so we have an ability, you can think of a small child as the example he uses, of a child that is learning for the first time how to smile at uh, its parents or uh, a sibling. That's something that the child itself doesn't really understand how to do, but it just does by imitation. Some other type of intelligence that isn't this sort of subco subconscious one, really, in the same kind of way as the automatic processes, because it's a new experience, but also not our experiencing um, ego self. We're able to learn this new thing, but we don't really know how from our experiencing self perspective. So he uses some other examples of this isn't just a phenomenon for humans. Um, and he uses uh, the example of a parrot, which I find fairly compelling. And it's this idea that parrots can imitate humans. And it's not something that's coded in their DNA or in their evolutionary process because they weren't always around hanging out, <laughs> talking with humans. But now a parrot is able to learn to imitate a human to such a degree that it fools us sometimes. Well, how is a parrot able to do that? How is it able to not, not the internal automatic processes of internal digestion and regulatory, but learning how to shape its voice mechanisms into something that mimics a human? Um, it seems to come from a, a desire to imitate us. Um, and so you can see this, like, what he calls ad hoc intelligence. That's not quite these subconscious processes and how we usually think about them and it's not our usual, typical experiencing self um, as, a, as, a, as a desire to imitate and an ability to learn things that were not previously something that were, that were known and that we're not really able to rationalize through, we just imitate. 
And since we have these processes going on in inside of us and that we can see they play out with other organisms, maybe even to some degree inanimate things as we talked about last time that have some sort of self-regulatory uh, responding to environment mechanisms. But the, the general piece that actually wants us to take away is a direct quote that I want to share, which is we as personalities, as what we like to think of ourselves as being, are in fact only a very small part of an immense manifestation of activity, physical and mental, of which we are simply not aware. So I've made this claim in a couple of different ways, but just to kind of really drive it home, again, you don't create your own thoughts. Um, as Huxley says, this is sort of illustrated in our common language. We say thoughts just come to us. We don't pick them, they just appear. And all of these other things influence the expression of our personality that we're not even aware of and have no control over. And it seems reasonable given what we know about how some sorts of animals respond and some sorts of plants respond, that there's, there's something uh, lower level processes that have these components as well. And Huxley citing um, Meister Eckhart and William James um, suggests that What we're really experiencing is a narrowed down version of consciousness and that our minds and our mind bodies is a way of manifesting the uh, broader consciousness in a finite moment way. Right, I have some nice drawings here for you. You can see kind of thinking of all of existence funneling down to earth, funneling down to your brain. And it's this idea that um, our conscious experience is a funneling down of a broader and more varied um, conscious experience. And that part of the goal with understanding the mind-body, relating back to Sotala and, um, uh, and Israel's suffering and enlightenment, is to become more aware of the fact that that's true, um, that you only have a partial limited awareness of consciousness. Uh, there's a broader spectrum of it that is accessible to you, but it always remains partial in its um, manifestation at the individual level. Now, Huxley really thinks we need to internalize this as being important to our society, and he thinks there are some obstacles uh, for us learning this and then developing an intuition for it and an understanding of it. And his first one that he points out is, now this was in the 50s, but I would argue this holds still, is that part of what obstructs us from having this broader conceptualization of self are today's, today's religion, which is, he calls it idolatrous nationalism. And he talks about what idolatry means. It's just a narrowed down focus on any one thing that isn't, uh, that isn't taking the totality into consideration. And his idea is that in the modern world, nationalism is actually the real religion. And, it's ca and it captures um, Christianity, it captures Islam, it captures those older religions. 
but it also captures the new religions. His example was communism and socialism, and uh, and you might add capitalism. That really, when people when you interpret their behavior, what's really people kind of conceptualization that they've landed on is a nationalist one, and they view uh, their loyalties and self often through that lens. Maybe you need to be reminded of that if you're living in 2021. Uh, seems pretty self-evident. Uh, here we are today with our polarized politics at the national level. So Huxley, moving on from that, says that another piece of this is that individuals worship themselves, as it were. And so they focus on their individual experience as equivalent to the absolute or being the most important thing. And he contends that one of the causes of this is the use of language to symbolically represent things. In that language, while giving us a lot of positive things, comes with some costs and comes with some trade-offs because any symbolic system is ultimately incomplete. It can't perfectly represent the thing that it's trying to represent. And language is our representation of things. And Huxley points out that, you know, for a lot of people, uh, he thinks of it as like an iceberg as part of their, of the amount of their mental life that is spent in language and the amount of their mental life that is spent not in language, in direct experience. And he says that maybe people spend 50% uh, on each, but a lot of people spend as much as 80% of their mental life fused with their words, as it were. And I have to say that I think this is, uh, is it was true for me for a long time that I would have spent almost all of my existence um, in the land of words, not direct experience. And that as we uh, spent as much time interacting with symbols on our collective devices, that the amount of all the time that all of us are interacting with symbols instead of the direct experience of things, is probably higher than it was in Huxley's time. He's really worried about this as taking the concepts, taking language as the thing itself, rather than observing direct experience and what it has to tell us about who we are and what matters. And he gives us some, some examples of this. One is from, uh, is from the Bible, from St. Paul. And he's trying to describe a Christian understanding in the early church. And he uh, says that the letter killeth the spirit. That this idea of having to capture the spirit in terms of words kills it. He was really concerned about that, like Huxley. There's also this idea from, uh, from uh, Buddhism and mindfulness training of um, looking at the moon and not the finger pointing at the moon. And we often mistake the finger pointing at the moon for the moon itself. And some other examples here are thinking of uh, things as independent from their words. So here I have apple does not equal the drawn picture of an apple, which does not equal the real thing that's out there in the real world. They're representations of things. And Huxley goes on to say that this is a tightrope we really need to walk between experiencing and uh, using knowledge representation for things. Uh, and it's a tightrope uh, that we must balance throughout our lives of using language and being immersed in that world 
and an experience in an experiential world. It's a, it's a tightrope, as it were. And he says that this is, you know, really one of the main problems with modern education, as it was in the 50s and arguably still now, that is that it's all based in words, 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 words. And that we don't have uh, quality training in direct experience and, and considerations of our fuller mind-body uh, experience. So how would we do this, he says, and this is where some of the takeaways are. It'll open back up broadly for all of us. But you know, there are a lot of, uh, his example is I think a golf pro. When I did some golfing recently with some friends, it's a lot of fun. And one of the things to remember is to relax. You start with, when you're trying to learn something, relax. Same thing with a baseball swing, um, same thing with trying to do this podcast live. It's relax and focus and do the thing, right? And this is uh, what's known as the law of reverse effort, that if you can get into a state of relaxation or calm flow, as it were, that that's much more successful than trying so hard. Your, your ego, your thinking self is thinking so hard to get something done rather than relaxing, letting your thinking kind of fall to the side, just becoming aware of the moment and being kind of in the zone, in the flow, as it were. Um, and this is the same idea that uh, Huxley's talking about when we say things like we need to get out of the way of the light and let it shine through us. This is the idea of minimizing the ego and minimizing the narrating self and just letting, just experiencing the moment. Um, and that the way we can even reach higher performance is also by being in this relaxed, flow-like state, flow being a concept from um, psychology and from the sports, sports world. And so here's my little diagram. You know, the idea is that we're in the way of the light, this kind of thinking, trying too hard, and getting away, getting our ego out of the way, getting our thinking self kind of out of the way allows for light and the performance to shine. And he says that given this is true, given that what we really need to do to be successful and also be enlightened and have a good life is get concept, get comfortable with this notion from religion um, and from the judicial system, which is grace. And I kind of think of it as similar to, to mercy, but uh, Huxley thinks about it as, as being kind of uh, empathetic with yourself and the world and humble with the uncertainties that are out there. Go about it with a little bit of grace about yourself rather than um, uber-confidence um, or in complete fear, just with a grace about you. Um, and that this is uh, what we might call the animal grace, kind of in this relaxed but performing active way um, can be thought of as an animal grace. We can also apply this to intellectual grace. Um, and know that our, um, our intellectual stories are maybe not complete and that we should, we should do, uh, internalize some of the ambiguity of building up an intellectual system. And Huxley says that the next thing to realize is the broader grace, the spiritual grace of having a broad awareness of how you are interconnected with the rest of the world, rather than insisting on your ego and having your life and having you in the way of, of your life, getting comfortable with that on a broader uh, 
spiritual level. And that brings us back to the end of his argument. <coughs> he closes with saying that, look, kind of like Satala was saying, there are positive and negative elements to existence, and we need to get comfortable with those. We need to recognize that things are going to be bad sometimes, and things are going to be good, and a lot of that is just outside of our control. And we need to kind of get out of our own way and experience a broader um, a broader life, experience a broader consciousness, instead of the narrowed-down version that we insist upon um, and that we create when we use language in the ways that it, we let language then become the things themselves rather than symbols of things. So to enclose, in closing again, as, as, a, as an experiencing ego, you're a small, partial version of the whole. You're not in control. You're not in control of even your basic body functions often and uh, your thoughts. And this is the same notion from the religious life, which suggests, based on their based on reasoning from both the traditions we were just looking, similar to Christian traditions as well, and other philosophical traditions, that the way Huxley puts it together is a minimum of malice towards others, a minimum of negative emotions, through again this looking process we talked about and doing the basic moral things. Uh, Adam Smith pointed out of the theory of moral sentiments is the kind of example I have of like, do what are the commonly held um, human things that are all right? And these are kind of represented in some symbols like Ten Commandments and elsewhere, um, and in our, our constitutions and codes of justice. Um, but uh, doing your best to uphold your, your moral commandments and commitments. And then again, finally, you know, not insisting on your ego so much, um, not insisting on yourself so much, more intellectually accepting that you're, you are a partially narrowed down version of the whole, and that your ego, in trying so hard, often gets in the way of this broader inner life, this broader awareness that you do have access to through these strategies. All right. I think that's all from the board this week. Thank you. Um, thanks for coming today. And it was a lot of fun to go through uh, the Who Are We? Part 2. And next week we'll be turning to um, The Story of Us, which is a blog series by Tim Irvin. And taking a little bit of break from Huxley, a little bit of break from the Less Wrong community, and spending some time with some of Urban's concepts. So be introducing that to you next week and sharing some of it during the uh, on the fan page this week. I wanted to say uh, thank you to all the new fan page supporters. It's, uh, that's, re that's really cool. Up, the numbers are up again this week uh, by a similar amount as last week. And we have a new Patreon subscriber, uh, Faith Bingas, this week as well, which is really exciting. I am uh, dedicating a lot of my time towards the podcast on the platform. And if you are enjoying this and thinking that uh, it's something you'd like to support and might be a benefit to others, you can jump on Patreon and support me there. That will allow me to build up a, a base of resources to spend uh, as much of my time on this um, as I can. So thank you for today. Thank you for those of you that showed uh, live. And we'll do it the same time and same place next week. And uh, have a wonderful week. <laughs>